Welcome to another edition of Children of Song, the podcast that explores what it must have been like to grow up surrounded by music. For those who might be joining us for the first time, we're speaking, of course, with musicians whose parents made it big in the music industry, or those artists, like today, who started playing and writing songs basically from when they were a baby. For these artists, making music is as natural as breathing. Our guest today started playing the piano when he was three and left home to pursue it professionally when he was 16. He's connected to one of truly the greatest entertainers ever, and while that connection is a huge compliment, the family aspect of that connection hasn't been completely confirmed. We're going to get to that. But regardless, he's one heck of an entertainer himself and a storyteller and really an improvisationalist, and we're going to see that very, very soon. But first... I'm Brad Newman, the producer of this series, and I'm joined once again by Gunnar Nelson, child of song in his own right, as well as a multi-platinum artist, who will be co-hosting with me this afternoon. So glad to have you once again. Well, it's nice to be here, Brad, and it's pretty exciting to actually be working with a good friend of mine. And uh, can I let the cat out of the bag here? Sure. All right, Jason D. Williams, uh, here with us today in Nashville, Tennessee, literally in my living room. Hanging out with my piano, and it's a, it's a real blessing to have you and your family here. Thanks for being here with us. Thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate it, and a beautiful home you have, and uh, we're excited about doing this, and oh, so this will be good. You got a good piano here. Well, thank you. I'm I made sure it was that. just slightly out of tune, just for you. Oh, yeah. It's it perfect. helps my voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be perfect. As, as we said, we're doing this right from Gunner's, uh, really, his living room here in Franklin, Tennessee. It's part of our Nashville session. Jamie Pfeffer is our engineer. And that's right, the cat is out of the bag. We have Jason D. Williams with us. He can play anything rock and roll, gospel, but is known for playing an unhinged type of rockabilly uh, in which music is just part of the show. Um, he's, a, he's a throwback, if you will, and his act is really rooted in vaudeville. He electrifies audiences, and we're sure he's going to electrify us today. Um, but not literally. I mean, we don't hook anything up to the audience well, <laughs> you know and that's a plus oh, yeah. well, that's not out of the question yet that's not a bad idea give the him a day is young the give him a little young. jolt <laughs> now we did a little bit of research uh jd and it said your parents were baptist missionaries right very true yeah. okay so i'm gonna guess there wasn't a lot of boogie woogie in that house or was there well uh just me i just did a lot of boogie woogie you know i grew up in a small town in eldorado arkansas it was uh Matter of fact, they even named the place Eldorado because that's where it was. And uh, so they <laughs> named it Eldorado, and it was a wonderful place. It was in the 50s and 60s. I was born in 1959, although I was made in 58, mm-hmm. and I came out in 59. And so uh, Made your debut. A, yeah. <laughs> it was a great place to grow up. They, uh, the town had discovered oil a few years prior, and... Uh, went from, I think, 8,000 people to 80,000 people in the 20s, 1920s. And oh. So a lot of people came, you know, hey, Marge, we're moving to El Dorado. You know, they might be in Utah or somewhere. They discovered oil. So I got to grow up with the grandchildren of a lot of nutty, eccentric people. So they all moved to El Dorado, and they were into the arts and sciences. And so uh, it was a wonderful place. My parents, yes, were Baptist missionaries. They travel all over and... But while they were traveling and while they were doing things, I was uh, sitting at home. I was about, I think, three years old maybe, and I walked down the street, and I turned my thumb upside down, and I walked into this lady's house, old school teacher, and I'd been listening to a lot of uh, the old Jimmy Dorsey boogie-woogie, and I started playing. 
she and she jumped up and said, "Oh my God, this guy—he's three years old playing boogie woogie." <laughs> so uh, she called all the people and said, "You got to come see him. You got to come see him." So there you go. Now, and was then, that your first piano experience, or it was? Or I, did I, you have one in the house? We did not have one, and so but soon uh, after, my dad sold some very lucrative stock, uh, and we bought our first piano. I asked him many years later. I said, "Did you ever?" Uh, Regret selling that stock? He said, not for one minute. Oh, really? Yeah, and then I ran in Jerry Lee Lewis, and he was my daddy, and that's all there is to it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Poor old Jerry. I hope he never hears it. <laughs> the old news is out. It's out all over Memphis. That if Jerry Lee was my pappy, then I'd know for sure That them old jeans I'm wearing Weren't from nowhere I love them old country tunes I've been playing them for years They seem to be real good When you're drinking a cold beer So if Jerry Lee loses my pappy And if that makes the whole world happy <laughs> Then I sure ain't gonna tell them anything else Outstanding it up. <laughs> so, so what is the story on that? Because obviously there's been a lot of rumors and a lot of talk and it, it's never been quite confirmed about whether... He is your biological father. Is that well? Well, I was adopted, and so uh, there was too much. Uh, so it goes back, really, and it's a real simple story. It's uh, so when we did have a DNA testing done, that was far enough back where they couldn't positively tell if he was or not, but they could sure rule it out back then. Uh, and so it didn't rule it out. And so I didn't want to, you know, he didn't want what he didn't want to pursue it. I don't want to pursue it. And then there was other times when we'd be uh, fishing or something like that, and he would know too much about before I was born. <laughs> mm. oh. And uh, that it was only uh, discovered, you know, years later. And so, but I was raised with wonderful parents, and I've been around Jerry since, uh, Jerry Lee since I was a child. So uh, I, and I was heavily influenced by him, but also as, as much influenced by uh, somebody like Leo Cocky or John Fahey are some great songwriters out uh, in Portland, Oregon, um, Michael Hurley, and uh, they're just uh, a, a, a real big, and, and you know, there were a lot of uh, black musicians that I grew up, I remember one time there was this old uh, piano store, and the pianists were so tightly in this store that uh, the cleanup guy, the, the janitor, he was sitting there playing one day, I'll never forget it. I guess I was, you know, and I sat back to back with him because the piano's benches were next, and I stole all these licks, these good licks, and I would go down there all the time and listen to this gentleman, uh, Uncle Bob Talley, and that. And so those influences like that were people that really didn't have a name in the business, but it meant a lot to me. They molded and shaped all my boogie-woogie stuff, and then I'd listen to somebody like George Winston doing that... Uh, Miles City Train. 
then the guy that influenced me the most was this real weird guy named Alan Seidler, who most people never heard, but if you ever get a chance to get the record Ook of Duke, <laughs> uh, it'll change your life. Not in a good way. But when, <laughs> when, when, when you say they influence you, because you, you look like you can play just about anything, and it goes on a riff at, at a moment's notice, um, it is, is, are you mostly self-taught? It, it, did a teacher stand over you and say, listen, here's how you plunk this out? Or, Well, not really. Like, you know, like, Gunner, there's some genetics there. and But the key of it is is, is that uh, a lot of times somebody says you need to play by ear and play. No, I was a human sponge. I could watch, and it was more by watching than listening. My music is uh, uh, based in vaudeville. I mean, I, I can play just about equally as good standing on my head, and uh, which is pretty good, or behind my back or over top of it. I remember one instant, this bass player I had for many years, we were going out some show, and he says, uh, he says to me, he said, hey, by the way, last night, did you see that guy on the piano? He jumped up on the piano, he was playing it, he got on the piano, and he was lying on top of the piano and playing it like that. I didn't say much. I said, oh, really, you know? So that night, I jumped up on the piano and I was playing it from on top of the piano. And he says, after the show that night, he says, by the way, I never saw anybody do that before. <laughs> he just knew if he mentioned it to me, I had to top it. So I got on the piano. So that's the way it is. I've watched by sponge and, and by, uh, I play just by genetics and sponge. Well, when you started out that young, I mean, there'd have to be something more to it than just being able to be taught. That's, there's, that left hand you can't learn. You really can't. And uh, I, I don't know if you knew this, but my father and actually Jerry Lee toured all the time together. Yeah, oh yeah. And, and so when I was a little boy, I got to watch him play. Oh wow! And uh, we had a conversation once about that left hand, yeah. and it, to to him, is at least what he told me, that was the key to everything. And he said, "You just can't learn it. It's just it's there or it's not." Well, there was actually Gunner a book written about it called "A Left Hand from God," and that's uh, that pretty much sums it up. You either have that left hand or or you don't, and that's the uh, main thing about it. So so for the the novice ears like myself who don't necessarily understand, or, and, and I think it's they the do band. concertos with the le- left hand the, too, the, right? The left hand is the band. Really? It's the entire band. The right hand's the melody. Mm-hmm. But that's what gives you the, the woogie and the boogie woogie, and it's either there or it's not. And, 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 and you have to have a strength and a certain nimbleness? No, you have to have a feel. Feel. You have to have a feel for it. It either swings or it doesn't. Mm. Yeah, he's absolutely right. It it. It either works or it doesn't. I've seen a lot of guys from Juilliard to Berkeley School of Music. They can play that right hand. I mean, they can work it over good as I've ever seen. But when the left hand is not there, it really makes a difference. Yeah. Show us a little bit. That's what you mean. All right, all right. Uh, you know, early on, it was that. Uh, People think this is two hands. This is just the left hand. <laughs> now that was all done with the left hand. I'm so jealous. Wow. I'm sitting here. Oh my gosh, that's awesome to hear. 
Well, it's your piano. Oh. <laughs> my piano, my thanks, piano has nothing to do with it. Thanks for getting whoever over here to pre-program that in this computer. Uh. <laughs> oh, sorry, I went spoke. Now, your life's been such a journey. And, you know, you've been through a lot of uh, really interesting times, too. You got everything together now. Beautiful family, balance. Oh, yeah. And stuff. But there was a time when you didn't have so much balance in your life. And uh, I was yeah, wondering. I had, I had corrective shoes. and now Is that what it is? You walk around circles for a while? Yep, I'm so balanced now. But uh, were there any, any times when uh, you were alone with your music and, and having those hard times that, that you think actually playing the piano got you out of that? Or, or what, what was it that turned your life around, you think? Well, the, uh, getting married and to the... Uh, not that the other ones were the wrong ones. They were just wrong for me. I'm sure they're good for somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> and they're sweet people. But marrying uh, my current wife, we've been together almost 20 years. And uh, Jennifer is just... Uh, lifeline of, of of what we do and what you know the the music she has uh, she's not only a booking agent and a construction um redoes houses and yeah. uh, commercial contractor and but she does it all and and she's just amazing and so and she gets that, you she gets me yeah, and, yeah isn't that important you. yeah <laughs> that's really important to for a musician for somebody to get them she yeah. doesn't get me i mean a lot of times you know like oh we talk i Guess about divorce about once a week, <laughs> but it's only divorce for like five minutes or something. Then we're back together. But that's getting a musician, you yeah. know. I mean, we're not easy to no, deal with. We are not uh, easy. No, but I'm... over the years, I'm getting easier and easier to deal with, and uh, it's because I'm getting older and older. And but I'm more mellow. A lot of my, a lot of my shows have a lot of energy, Gunner. You've seen them. I, you know? I, I mean, we 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 go nuts. It's a yeah. it's a high energy. So people are coming to see me now that were you know fans for 20 uh, 30 years and they say man you have more energy now than you did back then well then my energy was high on everything i did now i've uh, the energy level on all the uh, sidebar things are real low but i compacted all the energy i need are you pacing yourself yeah. yeah, just kidding. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm pacing myself. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, what I liked, I you know, right into the show. What I liked about your story is that um, it, it was almost that you had a guardian angel, N not to get religious about it, but that, that was kind of looking over you because there were times, I believe, that you had quit, you were going to quit, and you were in Memphis, I believe, and um, your car broke down, and you were like near, I think, in front of right. a hotel or something, right. and you wandered in. And there was a piano there, and I guess you asked if you could play, and somebody happened to listen to you, which led to a gig, which brought you back into the music business. Very and true. You, I, I was uh, in Atlanta, and I was, had a grand piano in this uh, club, a comedy club in Atlanta, and uh, I went Christmas Eve to go do a show, and there were big chains around the whole club, which was a real big club. So the IRS had obviously seized everything, taken it over. I went back to my apartment. It had been robbed <laughs> just in the time I went to find out that all my belongings in the club had, were gone. Came home, everything was gone there. I got, I did have my keys to my car because I was in the car. I said, well, I'll get what clothes I have. And I started heading down to uh, home, back home from Atlanta to Eldorado. And so I stopped by snow, the biggest snow they'd had in Memphis in years, uh, in the early 80s, I stopped right in front of the Peabody Hotel. The uh -huh. car stopped. It just wouldn't go any further in the snow. 
And so it, they had a captive audience in there because nobody could leave because of the snow. The piano player had not been able to get there because of the snow. So there was a captive audience in a grand piano. So I played, and a lot of that is, is fun history. The Bells family, who are a wonderful family down in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, said, well, how much you want to play? I said, well, $200 would be fine. And uh, we were making a, over the next uh, few months and few years probably six or $7,000 a night there. It was packed every night for years. And I played there four or five years and then got contract with RCA Records. And then uh, things, How old were you when you got that first contract? I don't know. I think about 25 or 23 or okay, maybe 18. Yeah. I don't know, something like that. And that was after playing at the Peabody all that time? Yes. Yeah, they came down. Uh, Joe Galani was, had been at the uh, Country Music Awards in Los Angeles, and so he said, ah, i got to go hear this guy. Everybody's talking about him. So he flew in and signed me right at the Peabody Hotel. We went. Give us a taste of what you might have heard had you walked into the Peabody Hotel back then. Back then? Uh I down in Louisiana, down in New Orleans, all them cats are drinking that mess, drinking that mess, bought good and light. To get this little drunky and they singing all night, drinking wine, sporty hoody, drinking wine, wine, sporty hoody, drinking wine. It'll really make you feel so fine. <laughs> You're listening to Children of Song. I'm Brad Newman with Gunnar Nelson, and our guest today is the singer-songwriter Jason D. Williams. Let's let's talk about your songwriting process a little bit. You know, in the early years, you actually were doing well things that were freeform, but but covers, all that kind of stuff, things that you had heard. Right. Uh, when did you start writing songs, Jason? Uh, it was uh, probably really um, the whole process of being in a studio for me is really uh, like a stream of consciousness. It's, okay. uh, I, I first did a record here I, a few years ago with Todd Snyder, the really good songwriter, Nashville. And so he, will, he uh, l- allows that stream of consciousness. And so when we, we don't have anything written, you turn the recorder on and we you know, make, just come up with these songs. And uh, it's almost like a... A bad Bob Dylan tune, but at least it works because it it gets out what's inside, you know. But that's a lost art. It is a lost art. It's like vaudeville. It's like those guys that would, uh, you know, back then when Sammy Davis Jr., I heard him being interviewed, say you couldn't just, and your grandpappy too, you know. Yeah. They they said you couldn't just sing. Mm -hmm. You couldn't just play the piano. You You had to do it all. You had to act. You had to be good looking. You had to be able to juggle. You had to and you had to book the band dance. too. You had to do it all. So, I mean, you so could, is it more of an improvisation? Is that really? oh, it's total. Yeah, it's it's like a Jackson Pollock painting. It's just a, you throw it up there, get the paint, and, and throw it on the wheel. And again, it's a lost art. I remember two conversations I had. One with my grandma Harriet, where we were working on a record back in the day, and we were taking a long time. We were doing everything by layers and all that, and all of our records were really constructed. And she's like, boys. Been in the studio for over a month now. What's wrong? Nothing's wrong. We're we're on track. We're just doing all our vocals and all that stuff now, and got the basic tracks done. Why, Grandma? How long did it take you to record the big band? She said two hours. <laughs> right. Said, what? She goes, yeah. They would they would roll in after a show to a local recording studio. Right. They would record ten sides live, 
and leave to go to the next show, the, the gig the next day. And I felt about, you know, two inches tall when she <laughs> said that. And then I remember losing 20 bucks in a bet with, uh, over James Burton. I was in a Waffle House with oh, wow. Tommy V's kid, um, or with uh, Bobby V's kid, Tommy. And I was just thinking about those early recording sessions in the 50s. And I thought there's no way in the world that that guitar player could go in and record such perfect guitar solos, which were like songs within songs for the early Ricky Nelson stuff, uh, without really rehearsing a lot because they didn't have multiple uh, channels and tracks to right. record on. And, uh, and, and I thought they would have to rehearse it all and then go in and know what they were doing. And Tommy said, no, no, they, they just went in there and they winged it. And so I called him up, and I lost 20 bucks because James said, oh, no, we didn't know what we were doing. It was kind of winning. Actually, I think I had a better cut on traveling, man. So that's the way they were. But, see, I think those flaws, which might be flaws today, back then, were be- was, it was just real beautiful art. It was just real beautiful That's where the magic is, right? You know, it was just, uh, you know, if that's the way it came out, that's just the way it came out. So it's almost as if if you're if you're playing a lick and you actually box yourself in the corner, the 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 creative process is getting yourself out of the corner. Is that where the magic happens? No, I think the magic happens because with someone like Jason, and again, it is a lost art. There's no such thing as a corner. You never get into one. No, that's very true. And but the songwriting uh, comes out of uh, just the stream of consciousness. Uh, to answer your question, it was just a, you know, it. it Maybe chords I've never played or things, but you just start singing. So how would you start? I mean, start something for us. I mean, where would even even the beginning of something? Well, uh, let's see. Uh, I, you know. There's a house that I used to call home. Now it's just wood and screen and glass Nobody gives a care About my past You know, something that can just mm-hmm. keep going, you know you Now would your lyric come after that Or would it be stream of consciousness at the same time? It, you know, you could just uh, and, and, You know, it just it flows It gives you goosebumps, you know, when you're doing it And uh a lot of Nashville people take that stuff, write it down. It's really cool and everything. But I, once you write it down, I remember saying the other day, well, I'm never going to see a band again that has ever rehearsed. <laughs> well, that, I found myself sitting home a lot. <laughs> but, but the point is, is if, if, I, I think if a band, see, if they really rehearse, like you know, a lot of people I know, Gunner and these, these guys, it really comes off good because they haven't lost their heritage of, of where they came from. But bands I see sometimes today, and then there's, uh, you know, they, they've rehearsed it to death. And when I see them on stage, they're extremely bored. <laughs> or they really know their part real well. It's like watching a bad play that has they, sure. over you know, on Broadway that they've just rehear- over-rehearsed and done mm-hmm. it. And- what I find is remarkable, it's like a, a Bruce Lee expression. He said in the uh, beginning when you're learning a technique, a kick is just a kick and a punch is just a punch. Yeah. Then you break it down and you get all mechanical about it and you start to doubt yourself and it becomes agonizing. And then when you master it, a kick is just a kick and a punch is just a punch. Wow, how about What's that? amazing to me is that you seem to have come out of the womb mastering that whole thing and not getting really bogged down at all in the mechanical part of it because you didn't really realize how difficult what you actually do was supposed to be. Oh, yeah, I'm scared to think it. about it. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I'm too goofy to think about it. When I was growing up, I was on everything. I was like the guinea pig for all this ADHD, MD, 
uh, O-D-C-H-P or whatever. You, you know, I had every <laughs> letter like in the, <laughs> I had every letter in the alphabet, but I couldn't say the alphabet. But, you know, I mean, I was just, I had learning disability, I had all these things. And uh, I remember I, I used to write this song called, oh, I don't even, let's see, That's Life. It was a song about That's Life. It was uh, sort of went like, uh, I, I would go to learning disability school and the teacher would say, well, why can't you learn math or something? Why can't you do this uh, thing? And I'd say, and I'd say, uh, well, can you do this? <laughs> I said, oh, well, you've got a learning disability. <laughs> That's life. You know, but uh, I always thought, so it's, you know, it's different gifts for different people. I just uh, happened to, but, but Gunner's tr truly right. It, it is a lost art, and I'm not so sure that it shouldn't be lost. I mean, I don't see many no, people. No, you know, I think there's definitely, a, well, it's inspiring for me to actually watch you do what it is you do. There's no way in the world I could do what you do. The reason why I have to rehearse, Jason, is because I'm not good enough to, like, be at that state where I think it and it happens. I'm still caught up in the mechanics of it. I'm still learning. Yeah, well, you know, well, me too. You know, I mean, me too. But the 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 idea of me being able to do that, but having a band that can follow me, they're <laughs> they're as deranged as I am. So. Well, they must be because they've been with you for a long time. From they what really I read, have. I think the 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 guy with the shortest tenure is like your drummer with like 18 years. Exactly. And yeah. and then everybody else is is yeah, 30 in, years. In the, on yeah, the oh, that's incredible. One of the things you've said, which which sort of I guess makes sense, is they've never been able to catch you on tape. So I, I take that to mean is that you're really a live performer. Uh, truly. It's, uh, well, as Gunnar said earlier, it's like trying to describe your, the best meal you've ever had or the best feeling you've ever had. There, there's no words to describe it. It's a, it's a feeling, and, and uh, it's, uh, I don't know, it, it, it's really fun. It's fulfilling. I just wish, and I'm sure Gunnar will concur, it's, playing music is just, God's way of, of, of giving you a holiday your whole life. And it's just a real beautiful thing. It's really applied to. religion. But, you know, when you go to a, a show like, like Jason's, it's remarkable. We, first time I actually saw a Jason D. Williams show was in Minot, North Dakota. Oh. <laughs> Minot, North Dakota in September, October of the year. Yeah. Freezing cold outside. <laughs> and he was heating it up. It was amazing. And, and it was, he just destroyed the audience that night. And I haven't seen a, a stage show like that ever. I mean, I really honestly haven't. And, uh, and it was inspiring to me because very nice. I saw the next show. And the next show was totally different than the show that came before. And every bit as captivating, if not more so than the one that had come before. I have a feeling that your show, none of your shows are exactly alike, are they? No. <laughs> and I don't mean for them to not be. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, I, I'll... You know, you take a simple song like uh, "I'll Fly Away." If it, if I've done it for a week and a half in the key of G, it may raise up to. You know, however I got to that song in my show, whatever uh, consciousness I had at the time, if I was singing something else and all of a sudden it went into "I'll Fly Away" and I'm in a different key than I ever have been. We just got to go with that. I thought this was interesting that, you know, here you are, this great boogie-woogie guy with a, with a miracle left hand, I guess, that God gave you. But, you know, the, you always play a little gospel. There's always like a gospel track in your, in your album. Oh, I'm very, I, very... I love I Fly, I Fly Away. I yeah, I'm that. very, very religious. Not very spiritual. 
but I'm very, very religious. No, <laughs> I know it's kind of a fad to be. No, was that a big part of your upbringing? Was it church? Uh, Did you go to church as a kid? Yeah, I used to go there, but everybody there wished I wouldn't go there, you know. they, uh, <laughs> they I remember there was this big wedding one time, biggest one we'd had in the town, and we had a tunnel that went under our church, so I went back, turned all the lights off right before the man said I do. <laughs> and uh, so they were really, and they told, and listen to this, they told me I couldn't go on the church trip to New York, you know, one time. And so I said, well, you know, bullshit on that, I'm going. <laughs> so uh, the bus was pulling out of the church and there was this little portache over it. So I ran, jumped on top of the bus and got about 10 miles out of town, but somebody from one of our tall buildings had seen me riding on top of the bus. <laughs> <laughs> and they called and they said, oh, you're going to have to stop. Jason's on top of the bus. <laughs> so a great story is there was this rockabilly artist, one of the great, I mean, Gunner, you know him, everybody knows him, the great Sleepy LaBeef, who was uh, on Sun Records and uh, just one of the legends of all time. Matter of fact, he's still playing. He's 83 years old, still touring all over the place. And... Uh, I think the townspeople got together because Sleepy was from that area too. He was from uh, El Dorado and so, uh, Smackover actually. But anyway, so they, he got me and they said, we're, we're, we're not asking you, we're, we're begging you. Will you take him <laughs> on the road with you? Matter of fact, they were wanting, I think the police chief and the mayor and everybody and the, all the preachers <laughs> got together and decided, well, we need him out of town. We, you know, we like having him here. He's entertaining but we need him to go away. <laughs> that was 16. <laughs> you were 16 at the time. Mentally. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I, you know, and I, so I got, went on the road with Sleepy LaBeef. That was my first uh, introduction into, and we broke down in a place called Forest City, Arkansas. And we were, our, my first rehearsal was on a little bitty keyboard, which I've never, I don't play keyboards, but anyway, this, uh, and he started playing all these songs. We were in a, our car, car broke down a rainy cold day we set up in this bay of a gas station and it was closed and it was rainy it was at night and I was on this little keyboard and he starts all this he's a really wild rockabilly guitar player and he starts all these songs but they're covers you know it's a blue 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 suede suit he's got this real deep baritone then he'd do a you know and a hello Joe Bean I thought, my God, did he write all these songs? You know? <laughs> and he was playing. They were all covers, you know. But uh, and uh, and I thought, man, this is the greatest guy in the world. And true <laughs> enough, is he's written a lot of you know songs. But he does. He's called the Human Jukebox, Sleepy LaBeef, and that was my introduction into the first place we played out of a small town, El Dorado. Was went to New York City. And we played the Playboy Club in East Manhattan. And I called my mother. I said, Wow. This music business is really fun. <laughs> I said, I think I'll stick with it a while. <laughs> it was great. Um, you, you, you know, you, you have a daughter and, and obviously your son here. Two sons, yeah. Do you, um, are they in the business? Have they followed you in the business? No, we're, we're hoping for our youngest boy here uh, that he becomes a plumber. I've known a lot of really wealthy plumbers. <laughs> in and they're doing good. No, they, um, th our, our uh, oldest boy can uh, play, and he loves music. He, he really enjoys it. And the young one, but is more of an entertainer with a sense of humor. And he loves to get up on stage, and he, he'll play the piano, and he can, uh, he, he, 
he can entertain. He would have been great in vaudeville, I think, if somebody had said, okay, this is what you need to do, and these are the things, he could do it. And our oldest boy, Bud, has the talent. <laughs> mm -hmm. But he has more of a attitude. If I could have got those two together, it would have been great. Oh, but yeah. when they, we, we have done shows together on stage, and it's fun. And I didn't know I had a daughter. Who, who where, is that? I, I actually. No, I do. Okay. <laughs> I do. You scared I, me a little yeah, bit. No, <laughs> and I have five uh, uh, grandbabies. There wow. you go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't, she does. Well, I guess, well, she has yeah. the babies. I'm just a grandpa. Yeah. Jacqueline. That's my wife's name, so I hope I had that right. <laughs> What's that? Your, your daughter's name's Jacqueline, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah so that, that's the name of my wife as well. And you part know. of your personality, too, obviously. this is I mean, you've got a lot of, of the vaudeville shtick to what you do as well, and you like making people laugh as much as you like you know, burning down the, down the joint, which I love. That's also very vaudeville. You know, that was kind of the thing. Um, the thing. They had to do everything. They had to do everything, yeah. and, and you had to inspire people. The show make, went dead. You know, there was not a sound man, a big light man, mighty, but most of it was, was directed to that one artist, mm -hmm. like your granddad. It yeah. was directed towards that. He, they had to do it all. You couldn't fall back on anything. You had to, and, if, and the, you had to improvise. That's so when you what? actually came up with White Trash Wife, was that for the moments in the show when you wanted to make people laugh? Yeah, mostly, okay. yeah, yeah. Cool. Exactly, yeah. And it was written by a friend of mine, Randy Cox, who back in El Dorado, like I said, I got to hang around with a lot of really eccentric people and uh, the kids of those people. And really, and so we had a group called the Big Red and Green Ones. First it was Industrial Minstrels, then the Three Bean Salad. Then we wound <laughs> up with uh, Big Red and Green Ones. And we were, you know, we got thrown out of everywhere we played because we had lawnmowers and chainsaws in our <laughs> group. And there were 20 of us. And we would just, we, I played trumpet. I didn't play, any, and I can't play trumpet. You played the Weed Whacker. Yeah, That's well, right. well, I play trumpet, you yeah. know, and we I can play the trumpet. But we had a lot of great musicians in there that were, we just, and we'd write these songs, you know. So humor is really a big thing here. Can you share us one of your humorous songs? Well, no, it's not very funny right now. It wouldn't be funny. <laughs> but, uh, well, I mean, I don't know any, uh, let's see, uh, let's see, uh, what is white trash? How's it going? Uh, let's see, Mom, uh, oh, white trash. Uh, I can't remember any of the words. Like I say, I, I used to know it. Let's see, Mom and Daddy sitting in the... Oh, I can't remember them old tunes. Hell, they're 30 years let's, old. Let's, to let's totally shift gears then. Uh, Fly Away, can you play that for us? You mean those old gospel tunes? Yeah. Mm. Celestial shore, Lord, 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 I'll fly away. Lord, Lord, I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory. I'll fly away to a place on God's celestial shore. 
when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Jason D. Williams, thank you so much. Thank That's you one of so the much. funny songs. <laughs> <laughs> that was fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Very sweet. Before we let you go, we want to welcome you to the B-Side, Stories from the Road. Here's a chance for us to change things up a little bit and have some fun. Now, here's a once-in-a-million tour bus story that could only happen to a guy like Jason D. Williams. So one time we were going, we we're in the bus and we're going down. Uh, we used to listen to this trucker station, WWL. Everybody knows about that. You'd turn it on real late at night. So we're on this long stretch, cold winter night. Everything has to do with cold winter night. But anyway, it was long stretch. And way down there in the middle of Montana, I see this, this uh, phone booth. And it was lit up just in the middle of nowhere. And so on the radio, we're hearing on this trucker station, we were, uh, I mean, WWL, we're hearing this guy on there. He says, yeah, um, I'm in this phone booth and nowhere in Montana, or he named it, you know, and here we go. And we're hearing him on there. And I look over there and there he is in that phone booth making that call. I mean, just his truck parked in this empty parking lot in the middle of just nowhere. And he, and, and my bus driver, who was my bass player of 30 years, we never said a word. We, we've never talked about it to this day. <laughs> I just looked over to him and looked at that guy in that booth as we were driving by. And I thought, oh, my God, that's the craziest thing. <laughs> One in a billion, but it's fun. Stories like that, it's not funny. Matter of fact, that's so sad. I wonder what happened. No, not at all. I mean, it's <laughs> not supposed to be mirthful, but, you know, that's crazy. It's, it's random. It is. It's random, but... I don't think there's anything random as funny um, in, in what you do. I really look at what you do, Jason, as a God-given gift. And it is beyond, it's as rare as hen's teeth. People don't do what you do because they can't do what you do. And what I love about it is that you don't get in its way. You let it happen and you embrace that about yourself. And to me, that's the definition of true art. You know, you're, you're absolutely a one-of-a-kind, unique artist, Thank you. And, uh, you know, in the sense that you have to be experienced personally. So I recommend anybody who's listening 
when, whenever Jason D. Williams is in your town, go down and see the show. It will change you. And as you say, not necessarily in a good way, but it will change. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Gunnar. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Next time Dylan Scott stops by our New York studios, we'll hear how this young country star got his big break and hear him sing his number one single, My Girl, only on Children of Song, the podcast everyone's talking about. Till next time, I'm Brad Newman. Thanks for listening. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.